0: Something familiar. All right. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, shepherd. Little dude's walking and he's already trying to get on the worship team. Here he comes. Yeah? You coming up for the worship team? You want to say hi? Say hi.
1: Yeah. yeah. Say hi. Yeah.
2: Say hi. Ah.
0: <laughs> yeah. All right. You know, it does say, "Come into the uh, temple of the Lord with thanksgiving in your heart." So that sounded like an awful lot of thanksgiving. He was pretty excited that mommy let him get that far, so he's thankful for being able to get uh, get some time. Well, Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Um, we have a wonderful service uh, today. It is a lot warmer in here than it is out there, uh, but uh, we had a really good three hours of fall, and so winter is finally here. So. Um, let me hit some uh, real quick uh, announcements for you guys. We do have a kids' class today uh, that will be taking place back in the kids' room. Uh, Lauren and Ephraim will be overseeing that. Uh, we'll do that after the blessing over the kids. We have the Ladies' Movie Day, which is November 18th. I believe that is next week, uh, next Sunday, I believe. Uh, please see Melissa Musson. All the information is here in the bulletin. Uh, We also have the Hanukkah conference coming up. It is uh, December 7th through the 8th. That'll be here. Once again, we won't have a regular HFF service that Saturday, so you do have to register. There is a discount for HFF uh, uh, members, and so um, that is in the bulletin. There is a code in here for the bulletin for that, uh, and it's two days. It's all day Friday and all day Saturday. Rico Cortez will be here, uh, Ryan White, uh, Monty Judah, Ephraim, Daniel. We got a lot of people who will be here uh, sharing throughout the day. We'll have youth and children's programs going on throughout the day as well, so two uh, jam-packed days as we celebrate the end of the Festival of Lights. Also, uh, bring your Hanukkahs because uh, we'll do family Hanukkah lighting, um, and there might even be like a uh, an, an ugly Hanukkah A sweater or something like that. I'm going to have to up my game from the uh, cats in the dreidel thing from last year. So, uh, men's prayer breakfast is tomorrow uh, at 9 a.m. at Monty Judas Home. Uh, Once again, the information on that is here in the bulletin. If you haven't gone, please do. It's a great time. Guys get together, they cook breakfast, they fellowship, and they pray for one another. So, all are invited uh, to that. Ladies' prayer gathering is November 25th, but it is not at the Frickers House anymore. It is still to be determined on the location of that. But that is the Saturday after Thanksgiving. So as you guys are planning out your Thanksgiving weekend, uh, ladies, you, there will be a gathering for you to pray at 10 a.m. Uh, for that. Uh, Bible study on 2 Timothy uh, is happening on Thursday nights at the Frickers home. That won't be Thursday night for Thanksgiving, but on other Thursdays at 6:30. And then the marriage group uh, is at the Drocher's home, which again, And all the information as far as address and that is in the bulletin is tonight uh, at 630. So if you want to strengthen your marriage and get together with other couples, um, the fosters, the drocers, a lot of other people, they'll all be uh, hanging out there at the Drochers home tonight. Uh, Thursdays at 630 here in the youth room, uh, 13 to uh, 19 year olds, we have our youth gatherings with the Ophuls. And so uh, make sure to plan accordingly to be able to come hang out for that. Uh, And then I think that's it. So um, everybody have a good week. Yeah, somebody had a really good week. Anthony had a really good week. Mark had a really good week. Everybody else have a really good week? Well, we're alive today. We have heat today. Those are all blessings. So let's stand up. Let's say Shabbat Shalom, and we're going to go ahead and start off by praise and worship.
3: starting to fail they're not working very well so as a result he's his body's building up chemicals that usually they'll deliver gets rid of so they're doing continuing to, to do tests on him that you are who you are we thank you that you have come into our lives and enriched it that you have saved us That you have adopted us. And one day you will bring us into your kingdom, into your home. There's so much to pray for this morning. Pray for those who in California have lost everything. And especially for those families who have lost loved ones. And ask that you would comfort them. Pray for those who are battling cancer and other diseases. That you will place your hand on them. That you will give the doctors and the nurses wisdom. That you'll comfort the family members and give them peace. We pray for this nation, Father, for we are truly divided, and we ask that you would reach down and touch this nation. We especially pray for the President, for those in Congress, for those who who will be new in Congress this coming year. That they will make decisions in light of what it is that you have said in your word. And that you will use them to help bring this nation back to you. We thank you for Israel. I can't not think of Israel and not think of miracles. For that truly is a miracle. A nation's existence is a miracle. The fact that they're still around today is a miracle. And we ask, Father, that you would continue to have your hand upon that nation. That you would guide Netanyahu and the other leaders. And we specially pray that you would bring that nation into a knowledge of the saving grace of your Son, Jesus Christ that they might come to an understanding that their Messiah has already come. Thank you for the time we've had this morning, Father, to praise you, to bless you, to come before you. We ask now that you would bless the rest of this service. And we ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen. If I can have all the children come up,
4: all right, what beautiful children we have here with us also happen to notice a uh, new person who's joining us for the first time. The Maxwells brought their newborn little girl. How do you say her name? Gita has joined us here. Hard to believe we all were once that little. All right, let's pour out a blessing upon all of our children here at HFF this week. Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day. Father, we thank you for the beautiful lives that are here before us under this talit. Father, we pray that you would pour out a special blessing upon them on this Sabbath day. We thank you for the new life that we have in our presence, Father. And we thank you, Lord, for all the blessings, the covenant of life that you have given to us. Father, I thank you for all these children. I pray that you would bless them, strengthen them, encourage them. Father, cause all those that have an opportunity to speak into them, speak life into them. The Lord, bless the parents, the elders, the grandparents, anyone who has a chance to uh, speak to them, to impact them in their lives. Father, I pray that you would always bless us with wisdom and words to say, words of kindness, so that they might learn to grow and be upright before you. Father, I lift up the sons. May them be as, make them as Ephraim and Manasseh. Make them fruitful and multiply, Lord. And Father, bless the daughters to be as Ruth and as Esther. Make them righteous daughters of Zion, Lord. And may words of your mitzvot, your commandments, always be upon their lips. We thank you, Lord, for all the blessings here on this Sabbath day here at HFF. Father, we thank you. In Yeshua's name. Amen. All right. Children are dismissed to their class.
2: All right.
5: Well, good morning, everybody. Everybody had a good good week overall? Good. Good. All right. So as I get my notes out here, who knows? Who knows the name of the passage this week? Told out. Told out. Generations are births. And it starts in Genesis 25, verse 19, and it goes all the way to chapter 28, verse 9. Um, It's a good little section here. Okay, so I'm just going to give you kind of a synopsis of the the passage. Um, Personally, this this passage of Scripture is one of the most stressful, uh, particularly one incident within it. Um, But this section gives uh, the greatest detail of Isaac's life independent of our father Abraham. So it starts in 25, right after Abraham had taken his second wife, uh, Keturah. And it gives a list of their children, and also a list Ishmael's children, and kind of his lineage. And then it starts with Isaac. So Isaac was about 40 years old. It was his 40 years old when he married Rebekah. And they didn't have kids for 20 years after they got married. But to attest to the power of prayer, uh, Isaac prayed to Yodivave for his wife, and she conceived. And who knows how bad her morning sickness was, because once those boys were big enough to tussle in there, uh, they made use of that tight space. So... Rebecca also prays to Yodivave, and she says, what's going on in here? And she gets an answer from Yodivave, and he says, you know, there's not just two two people. There's two nations and two groups of people in your womb. And so from the get-go, there's already clear division that there's going to be, you know, there's a division between these two boys. Um, And it doesn't really allude to them, you know, growing up as buds and their families are going to be, you know, friends. And there's going to be great family get-togethers. No, they're already divided from the womb. Um, so, and later on in scripture, we'll find out that that's, that's really true. They they hardly are brotherly just based on the way that, that Edom treats the nation of Israel. So the two boys are born, Jacob and Esau. Esau, he's a hunter. He's kind of a manly man, outdoorsy kind of a guy. Um, and Jacob is a complete man dwelling in tents. Some say, some translations say Jacob was a quiet man. Um, and I, I personally, I like complete man because Quiet man just makes it sound like Jacob was kind of weak, kind of passive, you know, oh, I'm just a twin tent dweller. But no, I think I think uh, complete means he was smart, cunning, and not only, you know, wise, dwelling in tents, but he was probably, I think he was... Pretty close to as rugged as Esau was, um, because even after this ordeal, he goes and he spends time with Laban, and he spends time shepherding sheep. It gives record of him rolling a big, huge rock out of the way so that they could water the water the flock. Um, so it makes sense that he already knew beforehand how to work hard. So next comes the infamous tale of the red lentil soup. So Esau is tired from his manly hunt, and it was so manly he didn't catch anything. He was so famished and tired that he was he didn't yeah, so. Yeah. He was going to die if he didn't get any of Jacob's soup. Um, Because there was probably nothing else around for him to eat. I mean, his father Isaac was only so wealthy that king Abimelech had to push him away because of all of his great wealth. I mean, there there probably wasn't an extra hundred loaves of bread around. So, (laughs) as you can tell, I'm being facetious. So it seems a little bit uh, bold of Jacob to ask for the birthright. Um, But uh, Esau gave it up so whimsically. He was being a little drama queen. And I bet Jacob was like, that was really easy. Wow, I got the birthright just that quickly? Um, and it, show, it shows how, how much Esau really valued the birthright. Um, I, I don't think he was about to die from starvation. And as I understand it, Jacob, everything Jacob did in this scenario to get the birthright um, was was good. It was a good method of getting the birthright. He didn't do anything wrong. Um, and some people will say, oh, he was taking occasion against Esau. Esau, you know, he was really, really hungry. Um But he might have been hungry, the the soup might have been that great, but uh, Esau didn't care. He despised the birthright. So when we hash it out a little bit, so yeah, why did Jacob ask for the birthright in the first place? So if it was me, and if I was going to ask something of my older brother, kind of just be like, well, if you want some soup, well, give me your bike or give me your car. No. So Jacob said, give me your birthright. And the birthright's not the blessing either. So the birthright is the birth order. So it's responsibility of the household. So as a little brother, like my brother, never let me question who was boss. So I knew, like he, he was, he was put me in my place pretty quick. Um, but uh, <clears throat> but Jacob was a complete man, which makes me believe that that had something to do with his perceiving the true value of the birthright. So not only complete in his tents, not, not only complete in dwelling in tents and understanding the, the ways of the family, he understood the value of the firstborn. Also, especially since it was it was mentioned just a few verses before. So Jacob was a complete man, and then it lists just a couple verses later that he desired the birthright from, from Esau. So, and it can also be assumed that Jacob's desire for the birthright was was heavily pushed upon him by his mom Rebecca. The promise of the elder servant the younger came to her, and there's no clear mention of her revealing this revelation to to, to Isaac. So it says in 2528 that Isaac liked Esau because Esau was really good with me cooking meat on the grill, but Rebecca loved Jacob. So I wonder if Rebecca had been instilling these desires, these inclinations in Jacob from an early age, and that his older brother would serve him, which gave them the boldness to ask that trade from his brother. So moving on through the story a little bit. So Isaac, is, he's dealing with the kings that he's dwelling around. So King Abimelech, basically because of the the, the wealth that, that Isaac is amassing, he says, you guys are too big for us. Get out of here. And then so Isaac goes on, he goes away, and he starts digging wells for his sheep, and he's striving with all the local shepherds there. So life is not necessarily easy for Isaac. Um, but thankfully, he does eventually settle down a little bit you know, based on Yahweh's favor. Moving on to Jacob versus Esau, episode 2. So Isaac is getting old and blind, and he's too old to differentiate between the ways his sons look based on his eyes. So Isaac is about to give the really awesome blessing to Esau. And this isn't the birthright, mind you, this is, this is the blessing. So Esau doesn't want to miss this one. The birthright, not so much. Ownership, family responsibility, he'll pass. But fatness of the land, wealth, feasting, good things, he's game, pun intended. So, anyway, Esau is headed out to do what he couldn't do beforehand and catch some meat for his dad, Isaac. And then in steps the well-intentioned mother, Rebekah. She's heard from Yahweh early on that Jacob is to get the blessing, that the elder is going to serve the younger. So, of course, why not help Yahweh out, out a little bit? Just because we're kind of coming down to the wire here. I mean, like, he's just about to bless Esau. And so Rebecca's like, ah, is, is Yahweh going to step in? Maybe I need to help out a little bit. So what's ironic is that Rebekah's mother-in-law, Sarah, she has this great idea to help Yahweh a, a little bit too. And look what happened. When she interjected her, her desires, her ideas, into Yodavav's plans, we had a whole big mess with Hagar and Ishmael and everything that goes beyond that. What's even more on it is that both Sarah and Rebecca they make similar statements. Sarah said, my wrong be upon thee, Abraham. And then Rebecca said, thy curse be upon me, Jacob. So I try not to speculate too much about the what ifs in scripture. But what if Rebecca had waited for Yodhi Vavhe, Instead of allowing deception to be part of the story, instead of allowing deception to be part of the scenario, and for that matter, any other sin, any other, any other concept or idea that we can interject into Yahweh's always, always plans that really just kind of foul things up. So do I believe that Esau deserved the blessing? No. Do I believe that Jacob deserved the blessing? Yes. Or were his methods a little bit off? Yes. So again, what if Rebecca had waited? So if we look at a story from just before, when Abraham, who was remembered for his faith, and actually, let's take it further, he was remembered for his faithfulness. He was about to sacrifice his son, Isaac. That blade was about to plunge. That was the very true moment before Isaac was was died. So that was a true test of his faith. Could not God, who saved Isaac from the approaching death stroke of that blade also given Jacob the blessing in a right way. Unfortunately, so many things that happen to Jacob while he's with his uncle Laban occur with at least some element of deception. You know, him getting Leah instead of Rachel. And then also eventually, you know, the, when he's having that argument with Laban, he says, you've changed my wages these 10 times. So it's, it's clear that, that deception is part of Isaac's life, or sorry, excuse me, part of Jacob's life. And I'm wondering if that's why. That's the clear connection. Because he partook of that deception with his mother, Rebecca, to deceive his father, Isaac. This is a difficult task, but will you wait for Yodivave to accomplish his perfect timing? Or will you presume upon his plans and interject your own will? I encourage you with these words, Psalm 27, 13, and 14. What if I had not believed to see the goodness of Yodivave in the land of the living? Wait on Yodivave, be strong, and let him strengthen your heart wait, I say on your day, All right, you guys, let's, let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for this day. Father, we ask that you just be with us for the rest of the service, and Father, we do ask that you just continue to watch over us now. Please just guide the main message, Father, and we thank you for every single person here. Father, you are great and good, and we praise your name this day. Let us wait on you, in Yeshua's mighty name. Amen.
0: All right, you guys, you guys tired? Only one person's not tired. Judah's over here already laughing. She's always laughing. It makes it easier to teach when somebody's laughing. It makes you more joyous, not quite as nervous, so thank you for that. And Congratulations to the one person who wasn't tired. So, all right, guys, we're going to dive right into it today because I have a a tendency to keep you guys over every single time I talk. So I'm going to do my best to actually like stop semi on time today. So open your Bibles or your phone apps or your Google Glasses or uh, your holograms or whatever it is nowadays that you have uh, with me to uh, Genesis chapter 2. We're going to look at the Garden of Eden towards the creation time of uh, man and woman. Uh, Hopefully to most of you in this room and online, this will not be a new story. Um, If your Bibles are open, we're going to start reading in chapter, uh, in verse 15 of chapter 2. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. I want to stop there real quick because I want to point out a couple of things to you. Some of you will know this, but some of you will not. The word cultivate there in the Hebrew is actually the same word that's used when it talks about keeping the commandments. So this isn't just something, you know, we always talk about with well, the commandments. We hear that the commandments have been done away with. But to cultivate the garden is exactly the same word in the Hebrew as to keep the commandments. It's an action item. It's something that you must do. Something that, that's continuous. It's, it's alive. All right, let's keep reading. Then the Lord God said... It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them and whatever the man called a living creature that was its name. the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field but for Adam there was not a found a helper suitable for him so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept then he took One of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die For God knows that in that day you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. Loin coverings. All right. So let's for a second stop there and examine what Satan said to the woman. And I know a couple times in here, I'm going to end up saying woman, Eve, I'm going to use them interchangeable today because we know if we keep reading, we keep going on into the verse that ultimately there's the fall of man. There's the fall of woman. The Lord speaks down to them and says, this is what the the curse will be for the man, that they'll continue to work by the, the plow every single day. They'll be hungry. They'll continue to turn over the soil. And for the woman, she'll have pain during childbirth. And at that point in time, Adam then gives a name to Eve. She's no longer woman, she's Eve. So I'm going to use them interchangeably today. So just a, little, just a little sidebar there for you to know. But obviously I do understand that Eve was not given her name until after, after the fall. So let's examine what Satan said to Eve there. Because a lot of times I have heard it taught as I grew up in, in the Presbyterian Church and the Baptist Church. I've heard it even in very recently that Satan misquoted God to deceive Eve. But when we read the scripture there, Satan never lied to Eve. Satan never sent out and said that God said something that he did not say. In fact, it was Eve, the woman who misquoted God to the serpent. Because God never said that you couldn't touch the tree. He just said that you shall not eat of it or you will surely die. She added that. And so I find that interesting because a lot of times we like to say, oh, man, the adversary is, he's so cunning and he is, he's so deceptive. and, And, but the first person who misquoted the whole entire situation there was actually one of the humans. It wasn't the adversary. And yet the adversary did not need to use that misquote to jump and deceive or to cause the human beings to do something that God had commanded them not to do. He could have very easily played off of that. And he could have said, oh, surely God never said that you shouldn't touch this. Oh, silly, you must have misheard him. And he could have tried to create doubt in their mind by using that one misstep, that one misquote. But he didn't. He actually never spoke anything that wasn't spoken by the Lord. So let's go ahead and read that again, because I just want you guys to look at that where it said, indeed, God has said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the tree in the garden, we may eat. But the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. God did not say, touch it." it. Never came out of his mouth. Um, then he says, uh, the serpent says to the woman, surely, you surely will not die. He probably even was kind of chuckling at that point in time. He was like, oh, you're not going to die. For God knows that in that day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the adversary at that point in time, he, he didn't misquote God. He didn't misquote God at all. However, what he did was far more powerful than just misquoting God. He added to what was said. He cast doubt by saying, you surely will not die. God knows if you eat of this fruit that you will be like him. You will know all good things and all evil things. And so Satan then put himself squarely in between the woman and Adam and God. He knew more than they knew, and by expressing that, all of a sudden, there's now doubt in the minds of Adam and Eve, or the woman. Well, why didn't God tell us that? If this guy is true, if the serpent is true, why didn't God tell us that we surely will not die? Why didn't God tell us that we would be like Him? We would be all-knowing. And immediately, there is doubt that is caused to well, what was God being truthful to us? Why? Why wouldn't God tell us that? Oh, if we're going to be like God, and we're not going to die. Why shouldn't we eat of the fruit? Hmm. This is a new, new piece of information. Satan didn't need to intentionally lie to the people in the garden. He didn't need to do anything other than to share more information that he had that they did not have. As we read on in that chapter, we clearly see that it is true. God says, oh, well, they've eaten of the forbidden tree and now they're like us. So Satan didn't lie. Satan had said, hey, you're not going to die. You're still going to be alive. And you're going to have the knowledge of God at that point in time. And later on in the chapter, we see that God actually says, hey, they've eaten of it, and they're like us. So Satan did not lie. However, he did cause them to doubt that God had told them the truth. Now, doubt's a pretty powerful thing. Have you guys ever doubted a friend, a spouse, a coworker? Doubt. Doubt causes you to, to be kind of paranoid. wonder what they're doing. You lose trust. You lose faith. Sometimes that's in your, your partner, your marriage partner. Sometimes that's in your friends. Sometimes that's in your boss, your colleagues. Sometimes it happens inside churches. Doubt causes you to look at a person differently and say, are they actually being honest with me? Did they tell me everything? Do they really like me? And then you start to fill in the blanks with everything else. Well, I think they're just after, after my money. Or I think they're just after my time. Or I think that, you know, they just want to hang out with me because I always know where to go or how to go. You come up with things and you manufacture things. You know, my mom always used to say the, the imagination is a powerful thing. And when you don't have all the pieces of information, your imagination automatically tries to put pieces and parts in place. How often, though, how often, though, when we put the pieces and parts together, do we actually create a picture that didn't actually exist to begin with? We imply motives to people's words and intent. And most of the time, that's not it. I can tell you that's the number one reason why my wife and I fight. You know, we're coming out of last, last week's marriage seminar, the number one reason why we fight is because I will say something with a completely different motive, but how it is received is there's a completely different motive. And all of a, all of a sudden, she doubts. My, she, she, well, why, why would you say that to me? Why would you feel that way? My kids do it all the time. Mom, you did this. Dad, you did this. I wasn't trying to do that. I was simply trying to help them out. And all of a sudden, your imagination, your mind has created a motive. It's created doubt as to why something happened, especially if there's injury. Whether it's, 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 a, it's a mental injury or emotional or a physical injury, when there's, when there's pain involved, a lot of times we want to apply motive. They intentionally wanted this to happen. They've been planning this to happen. We see that in our criminal justice system. There's murder in the first degree. There's murder in the second degree. There's manslaughter. There's involuntary manslaughter. And a lot of them have to do with, was it premeditated? Did you think about it, what you were getting ready to do? Or did you just react? Did you react on your own? Did you react in a mental or emotional state that was not you? There's all these variables that are out there. Well, All those variables have been created over time because we live in a fallen world that casts doubt. Doesn't matter whether you killed somebody, you killed them. It's murder. In the Bible, when you look at the commandments, it doesn't say, thou shalt not murder, except for if you hit them with your car when you're backing up and you didn't have a camera that worked, except for, and it doesn't list out these 150,000 different scenarios that are there that we do now in the Western cultures. In the Western cultures right now in America, there's so many loopholes. There's so many things you go into because we're trying to decipher what people's intents and motives are. And then interesting enough, in order to actually find somebody guilty of the crime, you have to be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Doubt. If you doubt... That that person committed that crime or did this. Well, then it's supposed to work. You acquit that person or you have a mistrial, but you don't sentence them as a guilty plea. If you have doubt. If you have one shred of doubt, Satan cast doubt. He cast doubt without having to outright lie. He didn't have to turn God's words around and misquote him or do anything. In fact, he was smart enough to live in the semantics of the words to share other pieces of information. That information then was taken by the woman and said, well, surely if God says I'm going to die, and I'm guessing the serpent was touching it, I'm guessing the serpent was... All over that, that nice little fig. I believe it was a fig. And I believe he was all, this is so beautiful. Said he was one of the most conniving in the garden. I believe he was selling it. He was selling it like a, like a used car salesman was selling that, that good old El Camino. He was selling it. And Eve was about ready to spend $3,000 over sticker price for it. All because he cast doubt. I want to share a little side note. Completely unrelated to that topic. Because I mentioned the fig tree. I really do believe that it was a fig tree that they ate of. I believe it was a fig that they ate. Because immediately following the fall of man. They realized they were naked. Correct? And they sewed together using figs. Fig leaves. A garment for themselves. So I'm guessing immediately once they took a bite of that fruit, all of a sudden they started to see things that they hadn't seen before. They realized immediately that they were naked. And immediately there was shame. And immediately they looked for the closest thing they could grab to cover themselves. Now, interestingly enough, the fig tree is a sign of judgment throughout Scripture. You know, Monty Judah actually has a really nice article on the fig tree from, I want to say maybe 2002, 2003, that was in the Yavo. I think it's called the fig tree uh, sign of judgment. Um, If you want to learn a little bit more about fig trees throughout Scriptures and how they're used and why they're a symbol of judgment. But I really do believe that it was a fig. That they ate, and I believe it was a fig tree that they used to cover themselves the first time. And fig trees are used throughout Scripture as a sign of judgment. Now, let me go back to uh, let me go back to all of this situation because you know a lot of times in our macho society, especially in the Messianic movement, where we are very male centric, there's no there's no hiding that whatsoever. A lot is said about the woman. Now, rightfully so, because the moment God comes and says, hey, guys, where you at? I'm coming to hang out with you. The immediate thing that Adam says when he asks, did you eat from that tree? God knew he ate from the tree because they already said they're naked. And he's like, who told you you were naked? Who told you you were naked? So obviously God already knows what took place. And so he's like, it's the woman you gave me. Hmm. Hmm. It's the woman you gave me. Uh, Officer, I was driving five miles an hour over the speed limit because it's the woman God gave me. I was in the car and she was just nagging me. I was running behind and she had to do her hair and makeup. And by the way, every time we try to go out the door, that's the perfect time to do all the dishes clean all the toilets, hang up every piece of laundry and vacuum. We're 10 minutes late, but officer, it was the woman you gave, that God gave me. That's how silly this is. Adam was there. Adam was the one who was given the direct commandment from God. The commandment about not eating from that tree happened before the woman existed. She was still a part of Adam. I've often wondered, been asking around to, to some other wiser teachers than myself. I've often wondered if Adam did not need a helpmate, if, there, if Adam wasn't lonely and wasn't going to have problems on his own, if God had never formed a woman, would Adam have eaten of that tree? Would Adam have been deceived? I believe he would have, because Eve was created directly outside of Adam. If Eve had never been created and had been stayed in Adam, the same thing that caused the woman to be deceived by the adversary would have been inside of Adam at that point in time. So once again, trying to to be doubtful about your partner or the roles or whatever. Trying to create this thing. It's like, oh, well, the man didn't sin. Man sinned. Dude was supposed to cultivate the garden and protect the garden. That included not only the garden, the beasts of the field, but his wife. And by the way, it doesn't say that Eve was deceived by the serpent and then turned around and walked throughout the garden and went to find Adam. It says that she turned right to Adam and gave it to him and he ate. Homeboy was standing right next to her. And it wasn't the days of the boom boxes, the Walkmans, the air pods. It wasn't like he was jamming out to the new crowder that came out yesterday. None of that was happening. He was standing there, allowed his wife to be deceived, allowed his wife to be, have doubt for the Lord, the one who created them. And he allowed it to happen. Not only did he allow it to happen, but then he partook in it. I mean, I know my wife is, is smart. My wife, if she really wants me to do something, she's going to find a way to get me to do what, what she wants me to do. It doesn't say Eve had to do anything. She just turned and was like, hey, look, it's pleasing on the eyes. It tastes good, and it brings wisdom. Three good things for you to do. And he's, I mean, my wife tells me stuff like that all the time when it comes to like kale and stuff like that. And I'm like, I ain't eating that. Uh uh-uh. uh. And this is like fig. This is this is a fruit. This is something that, that that supposedly tastes beautiful. It's got a great taste to it. I mean this isn't like Brussels sprouts up in here. So let's go back to the word. Then they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees in the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Don't you always love that when people ask questions they already know the answer to? The man said, the woman whom you gave me, gave to be with me, she gave it me, gave me from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now, okay, let me give you a little modern Midwest context here. We get gum every once in a while in our family. And we hide the gum. Well, we attempt to hide the gum. We attempt to put the gum in places where the kids won't find them. At least Eli. He's two. And yet, somehow, they'll come running through the house and they found gum. I threw gum away in the recycling bin the other day. And by the time I came home, they had found it in the garage in the recycling bin. They need a tetanus shot. But still, they found the gum then when you go, well, how, what, how did you find the gum? It's like, well, Jew gave it to me. Well, Hannah gave it to me. Well, Nora gave it to me. Now, anybody who has kids, been around kids, you know, that's not a proper answer. That doesn't excuse the behavior. So why is the man's go-to? Well, God, it's your fault. You gave me the woman. For all the junk that gets thrown onto women, and I'm not trying to have a feminist thing here, so don't get up in arms. It's not like, uh, I'm, not, I'm not going there. But for all the junk that gets given to women throughout scripture, and, and oh, they were deceived, and all this and that, the man is the first one to throw the woman under the bus, and the woman's the one who's looking directly at the Lord, and she's like, yeah, this, I got fooled. I know know what I did is wrong, but I'm going to tell you the truth. I got fooled and I ate it. The woman at least stands up and takes responsibility for it. The man's hightailing it out of the garden. Isn't that exactly what happens now? Another little modern Midwest context here. And marital agreements. Well, I wouldn't have said that to you if you hadn't have done that to me. Well, I, I, would have, uh, I would have been quiet while I was making breakfast this morning if you hadn't snored all night. It happens all the time. Now, it doesn't always necessarily lead to an argument, but we're selfish people. Even in marriages, even in friendships, whatever, we're selfish. And so a lot of times it's like, well, I did this because you did that. It's like, yeah, okay. And then you go all the way back. Keep quoting my mom. Two wrongs don't make a right. And you live in a cycle. In a cycle, in a cycle, in a cycle. The man had every opportunity. God gave him every opportunity to stop this. If he would have been doing his job to cultivate the garden, he would have stopped it he would have protected his wife. If when the serpent was selling that El Camino to the lady, he could have stood up and said, nah, nope, we're going to another dealership. Let's go on over to that tree right there. Let's get ourselves an apple. We'll be fine and dandy. Maybe we'll lose a tooth. Whatever. He didn't take, didn't take control then. Then when God's walking in the garden, he doesn't take responsibility then either. It's also what we look at in the modern context of where we live in the United States of America. Most of the impoverished homes that are there are single single parent homes. And most of the time it's the mother. She's the one who stayed and the father's gone. Adultery. There's all kinds of things where the father doesn't take responsibility for his role. What God gave him the right to do so and gave him the responsibility to do so. And they don't take responsibility for it. They want you to know they're the man. But they're gone. Your responsibility is not sending a check every single month because the court made you do it. That's not a father. And it's sad because that happens all the time. We blame someone else for our failure, for our misstep. One of the most prevalent statements that happens inside the Messianic Hebrew roots, Hebraic roots, Netzerim, Messianic Judaism, whatever you want to call us, is that the church lied to me. My pastor lied to me. It started with Constantine. Constantine manipulated and lied. And what we do is we create doubt. That doubt allows us to point and say, well, we're here today because, you know, we came out of Christianese, churchianity. We come up with new words, derogatory words, to talk about God's people. The same way other people make up derogatory terms to talk about us. Oh... You're under the law. You're lawyers. It's like, yeah, I wish I was a lawyer. And it's negativity that casts doubt. It happens all the time. We claim that these people are deceived and somehow we have the truth. We claim that we have come out of something and they are stuck in it. I believe that's one of the greatest lies that's ever been told is that the church is deceived, that your pastors are deceived, that they're doing this intentionally, that they're they're lying to you. No, they're not lying to you. They are teaching you the things that were taught to them. So my father lied to me because my father didn't know anything about repairing a vehicle. And so now I don't know how to repair my own vehicle because my father didn't teach me how to repair a vehicle. And if I was truly a man, I would know how to change stuff on my own vehicle. I mean, at least an oil change for Pete's sake. No, my father didn't know how to do it. He was never taught how to do it. So my father didn't lie to me. He didn't deceive me he taught me what he knew. He taught me financials. He taught me these types of things, how to be a hard worker. He taught me the things he knew. Well, how is this any different than than the pastor you used to sit under at a Baptist church or a Nazarene church or whatever? How is this any different than your friend who talks to you about the things he knows? It's very, very easy for us to find out that somebody doesn't know anything about a topic that they're trying to act like they know about, and they're being fake, and that we don't trust them anymore. They're not lying to us. They're teaching us what they knew. They're helping us in the areas that they knew. It's not a lie. They don't wake up in the morning and try to say, I'm going to deceive you. And we try to act like they're the serpent in the modern day garden. It's just not true. It's just not true. And by doing that, you create doubt in the minds of other people. We create doubt about people that the Lord can use. We do that too. It doesn't even have to be the church. We do that about our brothers and sisters inside the congregation, inside our jobs, all those different places. We do it. We cast doubt. We make people feel like they don't have all the proper information on somebody else. So we get a piece of information and we share it. Maybe it's not 100% true. Maybe we don't have the full story. Because Adam and Eve obviously did not have the full story. There's a reason why God gave them the piece of information that he gave them and omitted the other portion. Same reason why when you have children, you give them commands or you give them directions or you give them boundaries, but you don't tell them why. I don't walk around telling my eldest daughter, the reason why I don't want you to go to the mall by yourself is because there's most likely somebody in an ice cream truck who's going to come up and pull you and snatch you and take you away and turn you into a sex slave someplace in Mexico. Is that a potential? Of course it's a potential. Is it going to happen every time she walks into a mall? Of course not. But we don't share that information with them. We say, we don't want you to go to the mall by yourself. Well, that's all God did. He said, that tree right there don't eat. But obviously, that wasn't good enough for us. For the human race, that was not good enough. We had a desire to want to know why. Now, we didn't set out to do that. But the moment somebody questioned it, we wanted to know why. Or the same way now. The moment somebody questions why something happened, you would not even think twice as to why that person didn't do it. I didn't even think twice as to why that person didn't show up for Sabbath service. The moment somebody says, hmm, "Where's so and so been? They haven't been there in like two weeks," They're like, "Oh, you know, that's right. Where is those people?" And you start questioning. They cause you to doubt. The adversary caused Adam and the woman to doubt that God had given them all the proper information and that he had specifically kept information from them. And then they were like, oh, hmm. wow. But isn't that exactly what we do nowadays? Isn't that exactly what we do nowadays? Are we not repeating the same pattern? And I mean, come on, sometimes the greatest lies that are ever told are the ones that you do not know are lies. They're the ones you don't know are lies. Oh, I really need you to pray for so-and-so. They're having a really hard time. I really need you to pray for them. And you pass that along. You call the church prayer chain. I really need you to pray for so-and-so. They're having a really hard time. And then they come in. I'm like, I've been praying for you so hard. I've been praying for you so hard. How's good? How you hey, are you doing? We're fine. What are you talking about? Well, I heard you guys were, you were having a hard time. We were really praying for you. We were lifting you before the God, before the father. Like, yeah, I, I had a hard time on Wednesday because I, I fell and skinned my knee going into the office and it just sent my day in. But it wasn't a big deal. Oh, praise the Lord. It wasn't a big deal. But in the meantime, we're all running around and we're just like the real housewives of the Messianic movement. And then I was talking, I was talking, I was talking to Leah. And she was telling me about Sarah. The greatest lies are the ones that you only give partial information on. Just enough to be true. They're the ones that we repeat The things that we were taught. The things that we've heard. We have no intention of lying. We have no intention of deceiving. We simply just repeated information we were told. And yet that piece of information may not have been the whole truth. It's not new. It's the original lie. It's the ones that we continue to exacerbate today. No different than in the garden. And it causes doubt. It causes division. And it continues to allow the curse for Adam to toil in the ground to exist today. For him to work by the sweat of his brow. Because we continue the same pattern of behavior. This is no different than just doing what God wanted us to do. Instead, we want to add and take away from the Word of God. We do so because we're attempting to fill in the pieces that we believe were not shared with us. Rather than just taking God at his word. Well, isn't that again the greatest lie that was ever told? It was attempting to fill in pieces of information that were not given. They were not necessary for Adam and the woman to be able to keep the commandment that God gave them. It was not necessary for him to tell them that you won't actually die a physical death. You will die a spiritual death. And by dying that spiritual death, you will no longer have this relationship with me the way I intended it to be. God did not lie to Adam. He gave him a specific commandment for his good. Now, did Adam give that commandment exactly the way God gave it to him, to the woman? We'll never know. We'll never know. But I know there's times where there's stuff that's told to me and I go try to recount it to my wife. And sometimes the way it was told to me is not the same way I told my wife. There's a miscommunication. And a lot of times she does something I didn't want her to do. And I'm like, what do you mean you did that? I just told you not to do that. And she's like, oh, I thought you meant this. It's like, I told you this. She's like, no, that's not exactly how you said it to me. You said it this way. Which implies this, not that. So it's very possible in the garden. And all that matters in this is that ultimately it's the responsibility of Adam in the garden to protect his wife. And he couldn't do it. For whatever reason, he could not do it. However, when God withholds something for you, from you, it is always for your benefit. And yet, when we withhold something from somebody else, it's always for our benefit. God has and is always looking out for us. And yet, we're almost always looking out for us too. The greatest lie that has ever been told continues to live on inside our communities, our churches. Today, just as the same way it was in the garden. We keep talking about we want the restoration of all things. We keep talking about we're going back to the roots. Some people actually say we're going back to the garden. We can't go back to the garden until we learn from the original sin. And if we continue to put us first, if we continue to believe that God didn't give us specific commandments and just take him at his word rather than trying to add or take away from the scripture so that we understand exactly how we're supposed to put that into practice on a daily basis. We're not getting back in the garden because it's the very same reason why Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. So you're not going to be restored back to the way it was by doing exactly the thing that got you out of the restoration, I don't care how many feasts you keep. I don't care how many tallits you put on. I don't care how many kippahs you have. I don't, know, I don't care how many Hebrew words you know. If you continue to do the same exact thing, you're going to get the same exact thing. You're not getting back in the garden. You're not going to get back in the garden. So we must change. Let me leave you with this. Do you personally repeat the greatest lie that's ever been told? I would venture to believe at some point in time, all of us do. Again, the greatest lies sometimes are the ones that we do not know are lies. So are you repeating it at your office, at the grocery store, on Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, Mayway? All these new ones coming up. Apparently that's like the new one, sorry. I'm trying to stay up with the times. are you able to fully trust when God just tells you something in his word and just take it at that rather than continuing to try to go to a place that God never said, God never intended it for it to be. But you know what? It makes me sound really smart. You know, N.T. Wright is a really good scholar. I really like his new Testament commentary. If I could come up with something as brilliant, then people would be wowed. People are wowed by magicians too—slotted hand, the trickery, there's no substance there. People pay a lot of money to go get fooled. Obeying is pretty simple when you have the ability to fully trust God. This week, a lot of you will celebrate Thanksgiving. You'll sit down with family and friends. You'll be thankful for the time that you have. You'll have wonderful fellowship You'll see family members maybe that you haven't seen in a long period of time. You'll actually get together a lot. A lot of you will get together with people who don't even keep the Sabbath on Saturday, who don't keep the feast, who don't do all these things. They watch everything you do. If you are creating doubt in their mind that the Lord is living inside of you, because you make the snide comment about, well I keep the real Sabbath. Or put doubt in their mind about, well, his name's not Jesus. That okay. We get it. Everybody gets it. His name's not Jesus. We get it. Totally get it. Wasn't Joshua too, wasn't John the Baptist. It was Yokan. We get it. Everybody knows it. Are you creating doubt by the witness that you create to them and per and Continue to keep the greatest lie that was ever told. Well, God hasn't talked to you. Holy Spirit hasn't moved in your life. He can't move in your life because you don't keep the Sabbath. You know that ham that you guys are eating over at that table that I won't touch? God can't work through you. He can't. God can't be in any unclean state. That's unclean. Unclean. You don't have to partake from it, but you also don't have to be the devil. You don't have to be the accuser of the brethren. You don't have to be the person who goes in there and tells everybody how God has awoken you. we woke. Woke. Not everything is a conspiracy. Not everything is for your, for your, your demise. Stop casting doubt. Stop casting doubt. Stop casting doubt. Let your light shine before men, that they will see your good works, and they will glorify your Father who is in heaven. Ephraim come.
4: Maine. If we could all rise, please. And the Lord spoke in motion and said, "Tell Aaron and his sons, this is the way you shall bless the children of Israel."
6: murre ya adonai Nahavilechavia sim lecha lecha shalom. Bashir Meshucha Mashiach sarcha shalom shalom.
4: May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Yeshua Messiah, the Prince of Peace, Shalom.